Rammstein. Ein Mensch brennt. Rammstein. Fleischgeruch in der Luft. Rammstein. Ein Kind stirbt. Rammstein. Rammstein, ein Flammenmeer.
Welcome to Through a Glass Darkly Radio. This is the first inaugural episode, and you are listening to United Public Radio worldwide. The intro song, I just want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, you had Ramstein by Ramstein, and then you had Mark of the Doomslayer by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. So I appreciate that. Now, I haven't really said much about what the purpose of this radio uh, channel is going to be all about, or this show is going to be about. So this is based on through a glass darkly, which you can find on YouTube below um, through a glass darkly with Sean, but this is through a glass darkly radio with Sean Patrick Hazlett, your esteemed guest, uh, host here. And as, as I'm, as I'm uh, talking live now, what the purpose of this or what I'm going to cover, uh, sometimes I'll do news, sometimes I'll talk about current events, but I will always talk about the paranormal or things that people don't acknowledge exist, but uh, the government does, like remote viewing and um, UAPs and all that good stuff. And I will sometimes interview folks on this video, so on this uh, on on this radio show. So, I am very honored to present our very first guest, the esteemed and well-known Dr. John Brandenburg. And before I have him on, I just want to read you a bit of his bio. So Dr. John Brandenburg, PhD, is a plasma physicist. He did his graduate work in California at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in controlled plasma for fusion power, and has worked in defense, energy, and space research. Dr. Brandenburg was also part of the Clementine mission to the moon, which discovered water at the moon's poles. However, the focus of Brandenburg's scientific career has been to complete the great effort of Einstein to unify the two long-range forces of nature, gravity, and electromagnetism. So without further ado, welcome, John. How are you doing, my friend? Well, it's Sean. It's great to see you, and it is a great honor to be on your show. Pleasure, and in addition, and especially this is your first show, and um, live long and prosper in this show. I view I, your I, your uh, show as as important to helping to end what I call the ET cover up, leading to ET yeah, well. disclosure. Well, it's a long and sordid history, and half of it is misinformation. The other half, you know, portion of it is disinformation. And then there's some truth somewhere in there. What is the truth? I don't know. But well, historically what, speaking, is it? Go ahead. I, I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's it, <laughs> speaking historically, that's how the human race does these things. I'm sorry. Yeah, fair enough. You kind of uh, avoid avoid the truth as as long as you possibly can. All right. So today, uh, folks who've watched my channel on YouTube, we've we've covered this, but I think given the the broadened reach of the kind of broader there's a broader audience out there that I think would be fascinated with this story. So we're going to talk a little bit about the ghosts of Mars, and I don't mean the actual physical ghosts. I mean there's something that uh, a there was probably a civilization there and be something yes. really creepy happened to that civil may have happened to that civilization based on the chemical may composition. Have happened, yes. 
We don't, as as we'll discuss. Yes, and it's 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 pretty interesting. It may have happened a very very long time ago, but it also suggests that we don't necessarily live in a uh, you know nice and cuddly universe all the time. I'm sure they're nice and cuddly folks out there, but eh, you know there's some there's some other one other of these challenges we'll meet conditions. some other. All right, so with that, let's at least start with the premise of was there life on Mars and what's the evidence to support it and what's the, kind of the evidence to suggest that there, there was not any life? Well, to give you kind of the big picture, which is what I would like to mention at least in, in, to give a context to this, the big picture is we are, um, we are in the universe and we are not alone. I mean, every scientific evidence suggests that <clears throat> planets like Earth and the chemicals that we make up our, our bodies that give us life are to be found elsewhere in the universe. They've discovered like 5,000 extrasolar planets, and many of them are similar to Earth, and some of them are even in the same kind of uh, comfort zone of where you have liquid water on their surfaces. So Earth-like planets are to be found everywhere. So are the chemicals of life. So there is no reason as a scientist to not believe that other life biospheres, Earth-like biospheres, and intelligent species do exist in the um, universe. And, um, and since we're re fairly recent, in the universe, that means there's probably cultures out there that have been around for a long, long time uh, preceding us and are far more advanced in space travel and things like this. This is all just a, uh, a very simple scientific extrapolation of our situation. I mean, we've, we've developed space travel. We've been to the moon. We could go to Mars anytime we, we put our minds to it. Uh, other people have obviously figured out how to do this too. Um, so I, as it turns out, it looks like we had two Earth-like planets in this solar system. One was Earth, of course, and the other was Mars. Mm -hmm. Mars had an ocean, and that ocean, the, the, the bed of that ocean lies, if, lies on the northern young part of Mars. The way they get the relative ages of terrains on Mars, you count the number of craters. It, you know, if, like the moon, uh, you can see there are areas that have been flooded with lava and uh, they don't have as many craters as the highlands, which has lots of craters. That means those highlands have been around since the moon formed. The same is on, mm -hmm. uh, you can extrapolate that to Mars um, uh, with the added detail that Mars is next to the asteroid belt, which is a source of, so we would expect more, more meteorites to hit Mars per year uh, uh, in certain size ranges than would hit uh, the moon or Earth. So basically we have a planet that it was apparently quite Earth-like for most of its planetary history. It had a northern ocean I, I was the first person to give a paper on this ocean in a modern scientific forum back in 1986. Uh, uh, and you can look that up on the Mars Ocean Theory on Wikipedia. I'm reference number one. 
however, I never get credit for it. It's like Brandenburg who, because uh, of things I'm going to discuss, I'm considered radioactive on Mars because I, I extrapolate from that. Because you said that Mars was radioactive. Mars was, well, <laughs> well, that's part of it, yes. Uh, and it is partly radioactive. But what apparently Mars was like Earth until some terrible event happened um, fairly recently in geologic time. We're talking about something before the dinosaurs happened on Earth. But mm -hmm. still, in geologic time, um, that's fairly recent. Uh, the Earth's been around for four and a half billion years old, four and a half billion. The dinosaurs are only a couple hundred million years ago. Uh, this was about probably 500 million years ago. So something on Mars happened to change Mars from being an Earth-like planet with an ocean and Earth-like uh, it apparently had an oxygen atmosphere. That's why if you look at pictures of Earth from space, the desert areas are all bright red. That's because the oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere oxidizes the iron in the soil into mm -hmm. hematite. Sa same color as our blood is for the same reason as oxidized iron. And so Mars apparently had an oxygen atmosphere. It had an ocean. And that means they had to have temperatures and um, atmospheric pressure similar to Earth. So it was the second Earth. Now, and John, how, how do you know they had an ocean? What was what was kind of the what was the chemical signature that indicated that there may have been an ocean there? Well, they 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 basically measured. Uh, they did a, a very complex analysis. They looked at Mars is covered with water channels, places where apparently rivers formed and flowed. Uh, you have basically science fiction looking uh, landscapes where you have craters like on the moon, but the craters were once lakes and they actually have rivers leading out to them, leading down mm. to where apparently the ocean shoreline was and those have deltas on them. So those rivers flowed for a long time. So uh, I merely found it because the estimates of, of how much water was on Mars were enough to cover the entire surface of Mars to about half a kilometer depth. And if you move that up to like one quarter of the Martian surface area, then you get a, a, an ocean several kilometers deep in the northern low part of Mars. And you can see where the ocean shoreline was because you have a lot of craters on these old landscapes. And then suddenly all the craters get, get wiped out as if they turned to mud and were wiped out because there was an ocean mm -hmm. sitting there. And so it's a, it's a rather science fiction-y looking landscape where you have craters like the moon and, um, you know, lakes in them and rivers flowing around them. And um, so, I mean, we have that on Earth. Uh, you know, we have uh, uh, Hudson's Bay, for instance, that is, is a big mm -hmm. meteor crater, as it turns out. And it's full of water now. But but so we had an ocean. We had a planet that was very much like Earth, had apparently had an oxygen atmosphere. Uh, it had a uh, CO2 greenhouse giving it warm temperatures like Earth, even though it was farther from the sun. Um, so water could uh, flow freely on its surface and wouldn't evaporate. And and apparently this lasted a long time, which leads to the 
immediate question, well, was there life on Mars? Yes, apparently mm -hmm. there was life on Mars. Uh, in fact, the Viking landing experiments, which were done half a century ago, they landed on Mars, they tested the soil for life, and they got weird chemistry, they called it. By the rules that they'd adopted before they landed on Mars, they actually had found life. But NASA apparently vetoed that verdict and said, oh, no, it was weird chemistry of some sort. You'll notice now they've landed like five times on Mars since then. Have they tested for life again using more new, more advanced technologies? No, they haven't. That's because yeah, I think they, had they know what the answer will be. I think they had some sort of uh, meteor that they had discovered. I don't know if it was while they were exploring Mars or something. Yes, they had yes, ALH eighty four hundred one. But they and that, they introduced about half the sample to water, right? And like we have microorganisms that are up in the Arctic, right? That are kind of use yes. per, I think peroxide, hydrogen per, peroxide. And if you introduce water into something like that, you'll kill an organism like that. So half the organisms that they introduced. You know, the organisms that they introduced or the, you know, the, <laughs> the possible organisms that they, they killed them. Yeah, they killed them. Yeah, they killed them with water if, if they were indeed organisms. They, and then the other half, yeah, they declared they it in, inconclusive. Yeah. They declared it inconclusive. Uh, as an acronym I heard recently from my brother, he works, worked for Hewlett Packard and he says NAC, which means not altogether clear. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, however, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you go next door to a planet that used to be Earth-like and you find life there or signs of past life, if life was on Mars, then it's in the stars. Because there's mm -hmm. nothing, if, if you had life on two planets in the same solar system, then that means life is a very common phenomenon. And um, so, um, now, how long did that life flourish on Mars? Apparently a long time. And that's why we find what looks at two, two at least two sites, signs of archeology. span It's eroded, it's beat up, but of course, we're talking about Mars that's been in a deep freeze for about half a billion years uh, and lost most of its atmosphere and this catastrophe that occurred and but you have the face at Cydonia uh, the big mm -hmm. Mars face and then next door to it within 10 kilometers 10 clicks is a pyramid and NASA never that's shows the DNM, the that's the DNM pyramid that. right that's the DNA the, the yeah. Petro and Molinar pyramid now NASA didn't they try to didn't, didn't the NASA try to or the picture. Did the European Space Agency and either them or NASA or both tried to debunk the face on Sidonia oh, Men oh, Mense? Yes. And just yes. a little bit, like, what, what did they do to... Okay, I just want people to have the whole story so that they can kind of make their own decision. Oh, oh well, okay. The, the story was, is in 1976, they took two pictures of the Sidonia face. Um, mm -hmm. In fact... The cover-up began immediately because they took one picture and they said, oh, my God, it looks like a face. They also apparently found the pyramid in an adjoining frame of the uh, swath of pictures. 
so they said, oh, it was a trick of light and shadow. We took another picture, you know, a few hours later and it was gone. No, it was dark. They took it. The, they were taking pictures at sunset to get the maximum mm -hmm. shadow length so you could, you know, uh, get the maximum relief of the landscape. What they did is they waited 30 days till everyone had forgotten about it. Then they brought the spacecraft again over there again, and they took another picture showing the face, this time at a different time of day. And they also took two more images of the DNM pyramid. So mm -hmm. they, and it's a five-sided pyramid. You can look it up on the net. And um, so then they had these pictures and I'm going to hearken back to the big picture again. Imagine you have a government that's already aware that we're not alone in the universe and is keeping that quiet. Let's say mm -hmm. something like Roswell happened. The government knows we're not alone. They know that um, not everybody out there is nice. They also know that. Some of them are nice. Some of them are not so nice. Um, so they... They decide to cover that up. And then you find remains of a dead civilization on Mars. What do you do? You cover that up, too. So you the that's why I now call it the E.T. cover up. It's it's not just the UFO cover up. They have a cover. They're trying to maintain a cover up on Mars at the same time. They're fighting a war on two fronts. Just as the Germans well, isn't in World there, War II. Isn't there. But that's like some evidence of of life on mars now as well based on the methane cycle oh yes 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 there is uh mars has is a rather lunar like place i mean there's there's barely enough air to allow liquid water to form at some of the lower elevations at least temporarily temperatures are so low that what liquid water would probably freeze unless it was full of salt uh so what they've done though is they found um, and and they, they, they always refer to these things as puzzling as, as, and as a mystery. They found out that they had predicted the atmosphere of Mars would be, you know, mostly CO2, and then they measured some nitrogen. Mm -hmm. Okay, they expected that. Then they expected there would be carbon monoxide formed by ultraviolet breaking up uh, CO2, and then a very tiny trace of oxygen. Instead, the third most abundant element... Uh, gas in the um, no no it's the fourth most about uh, there's argon which is what we put in light bulbs it's part of our own atmosphere um, yeah just remember that one they found remember that element. the, we'll the get fourth most that. abundant argon right yes the, the fourth most abundant element in the mars atmosphere is oxygen and it's molecular oxygen it's not atomic oxygen it's not produced by ultraviolet or something like this this is regular molecular oxygen like we breathe on earth in fact if you had a if you were really smart you could figure out how to strain out that oxygen from the mars atmosphere as it exists now and have all the oxygen you needed if you had a, a you know you'd basically be pulling in a lot of air for, mm -hmm. for like a, a colony just straining out the oxygen and putting back out the co2 into the uh, uh, into the atmosphere again and what they found also is that in the spring and summer on Mars, the oxygen levels go up. And then in mm -hmm. the winter, they go down, local winter. And then they mm -hmm. also found methane, which is another, it's swamp gas. It means bacteria breaking down 
fossil organic matter. And they found that that would go up too in the summer and and uh, decline in the winter. So, so what, was their, what was their explanation for it's, that? Because they always have some a, egghead, an egghead, like non, oh, non-life they explanation. They have no explanation, Sean. They have no explanation. They they say it's puzzling. It's puzzling. You know, I look at it and I said, well, it's there's obviously a, a, a very slight, small remnant biosphere on Mars of microbes. And the other, uh, I grew up in Oregon, where if you go to the coast and seaweed washes up on the shore, this is Oregon, mm-hmm. it's kind of far north, and uh, the seaweed that would wash up was red. It wasn't green. And it's red because the seaweed would tended to grow like 10 feet down in the water. Mm-hmm. It's called kelp. Everything was called kelp in those days. And as it turns out, chlorophyll um, rejects green light, which is where the sun actually puts out most of its light is green. Right. It was just re- it's the colors that what it reflects. Green. It's not what it is. Right. Yeah, that's right. Chlorophyll reflects, reflects green light. And actually, that's the most abundant part of of the solar spectrum. So if you're starved for light, you adjust your chlorophyll so it's red. So mm-hmm. the most energetic photons that help with photosynthesis are green and blue. So you reject the red and you concentrate on green and blue. And that means you can have a good photosynthesis even 10 feet down in the ocean because ocean water passes uh, blue and green light fairly well and not red. So when we look out on these sweeping vistas of Mars and we see all this red stuff, we could be looking at plant life clinging to all the rocks and we wouldn't recognize it. I mean, of course, yeah, it could be lichen or oxidized iron, you know, hematite. Yeah, yeah, but li- red lichen, lichen would be there and we knows. wouldn't even. Right. In fact, if you don't want to be eaten, if you're a piece of lichen and don't want to be eaten by something on a Mars rock, you, you make yourself red as camouflage, basically. So, so we have abundant evidence that there's life on Mars even now. However, if there's life on Mars, there's life in the stars. As a character in one of my science fiction novels about the UFO cover-up reports to uh, this uh, glamorous news anchor who's he's explaining the UFO cover-up and the she says well why is there a Mars cover-up and he says because the Mars bone is connected to the UFO bone the Mars bone goes the UFO bone goes and he says and if the UFO go, o bone goes the head of this government will fall off <laughs> because the you, yeah, you know, it's been... come out the government was covering this thing up for that so long so so as a as a cautionary member, as a you know, a ca- cautionary measure, they they just squelched any talk about uh, uh, you know archaeology on Mars, and they said, "Oh, the face on Mars is just a trick of light and shadow." They didn't talk about the pyramid at all. I was at a scientific conference where they released the first new pictures of the fa- of the pyramid. I'm sitting Mm -hmm. there in a scientific with a bunch, a thousand other scientists. And this guy gets up and says, oh, here's a new picture of the pyramid of Mars next to the face. 
And you could just tell there was just this indrawing of breath because it's obviously a pyramid. It looks like brickwork and, and everyone knew it. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's, uh, but there, these people are all dependent on NASA for grants. And you got to play ball. If you're a scientist at a university, your entire career depends on how much grant money you can bring in. So if you, if somebody at NASA, you ask, start asking questions, well, what about this pyramid next to it? You got a face and then you got a pyramid next to it. The NASA guy will simply say, you know, uh, you, you've gotten a lot of grants from us already. Uh, you, you, if you go asking questions like that, you're going to be on shaky ground here. You might mm -hmm. not get any more grants. And that's enough. That's enough to uh, so academic freedom doesn't exist in this country anymore because everybody's dependent on grant money. And that means the government can basically squelch all debate on subjects it is uncomfortable with. And that's what they've well, done. And that's and by the way, the face at Sidonia is not the only alleged. No, it is not. You have a story. There's about another that. site. There's another site uh, halfway around the planet in a, in a place near a uh, place called Utopia. Plain of Utopia, but it's on the edge of that. Utopia Plain used to be part of the ocean bed mm -hmm. and at the shore of the ocean, just like Cydonia Menza was at the shore where the ancient ocean was, shoreline. Uh, but there's another site um, that I discovered two more faces and people can look up, look them up. Utopia faces or Brandenburg faces. Uh, there are two of them. And one of them looks very similar to the face at Cydonia. They're about two thirds the size. And they have the same detailed markings. They have a, an indentation over the left eye, a mark on the cheek. And of course, they have nose, eyes, mouth. And... Um, when I discovered this, I let people at NASA know I discovered it. And, and uh, I even got a phone call from Carl Sagan <laughs> saying, asked basically saying, why are you causing this trouble? I'm trying to, you know, mm -hmm. I'm trying to get a joint Russian U.S. Mars mission going and you're causing trouble. And I said, well, I'm just talking about what we found on Mars, just, you know, like the pyramids of Elysium. You had that in your Cosmos series. So he was so he said and I said, you know, we found this another at least one really good face that looks just like the one he says yes i heard about that could you send me a picture of that mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the 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 location where this was found was then renamed it had just been called kind of utopia area it was renamed galaxus chaos <laughs> so apparently i had thrown somebody's galaxy into chaos by finding these things because he saw the pictures and and so um so yeah there is archaeological there's two at least two archaeological sites and there's probably several others on mars uh, where there are pyramid shaped things and there are carved faces like giza actually the faces um close more closely resemble the Faces in old Mexico done by the Olmecs, faces in helmets. Mm -hmm. And um, 
they even have the, you know, the helmet visor and then the side of the helmet forms a right angle. Uh, that is clearly seen in the pictures of Cydonia Menza. And um, so there's, um, yeah. yeah the, how big, the, how big is that? Objects on the pyramid. Yeah. Oh, it's like, well, it's the same size. It's almost the same size as the pyramids at Elysium, which were discussed by Carl Sagan in his uh, historic uh, show Cosmos. And they are about three kilometers on the side and one kilometer tall. They were apparently not built. They were apparently landforms that suggested pyramids, and then they were shaped by whoever lived there. It's a lot cheaper in terms, you could build a lot bigger pyramid if you just take a mountain that looks like a pyramid and yeah. you know take a lot of soil and rock away and make this faces and then face it with brick. There's a place even on the DNM pyramid where you can see where apparently brickwork has failed and it makes a little, it looks like a little square doorway. Actually, it's a place where brickwork in a square area has just collapsed and slid down the side of the pyramid. So those details are there. Um, the face on Mars, um, they took a picture, they took a new picture in 1998 and they, Instead of taking it from a directly above, like the original pictures, they took it from the mm -hmm. side. And uh, you can see because there's a round crater, you know, a nice round crater beside the face. And you can see in the new pictures they released that it's the, the, the crater is elliptical, meaning you're viewing it from the side. And when you, um, you look at it, you can see there's nostrils in the nose. But what they right. did is they released the picture without any enhancement. So it was the it was the crummiest looking picture they'd ever released from Mars. It looked uh, we joked in the uh, investigation team that we're we were part of. Uh, we called it uh, the cat box picture as a picture of something in a cat litter box. <laughs> That's what it looked like. But when we um, enhanced it, you can see that it's got eyes, nose, mouth. It's got not a pair of nostrils in the nose. So um, we showed that at a scientific meeting that was that was upcoming. And a scientist from JPL showed up at our session where we we're presenting this stuff and attacked DePetro. Mm -hmm. he, he he got in uh, Petro asked him, you know, technical questions like, why did you release a picture that was with no enhancement and stuff like this. And the guy starts screaming at him and raised his fist to attack him. I got in between the Petro was angry with me. He says, you should have let him hit me. Then I could have sued him, you know, but <laughs> you know, I, he was a scrawny old man, gray beard. And here's the Petro from a tough Italian neighborhood in Baltimore. I grew up in a tough town in Oregon. And <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, I just, told him calm down sir and, and he walked away right. and, and uh but there's there's a good reason somebody from jpl would not want to explore oh no mars right actually his, his the thing he cried out was are you calling me a liar and DePetro just said why didn't you you know why why didn't you enhance this picture you know like everything else for mars and the guy starts screaming at him why are you calling me a liar i'll deck you by god and uh, Petro just stood his ground. He didn't even blink, you know. And, and uh, so it was, uh, 
it was a very strange occurrence. And uh, as the guy was walking away, I told Vince, I said, well, that means this thing isn't over, Vince. In fact, this thing is barely started. Mm-hmm. You know, they, uh, you, we couldn't ask for a better confirmation that, that we, that we were, we'd struck pay dirt. Now they've now released new, many new pictures of the face at Cydonia and also new pictures of the face, the pyramid. It's, it looks like a pyramid. The face looks like a face and it's got straight lines on the top of its helmet and the sides of its helmet are straight and meet at a right angle with the visor. Mm-hmm. It's got nostrils in the nose, two eyes, nose, mouth. It's, this is eroded archaeology. I mean, it's, it's a little eroded. Sure. You would expect it to be, but uh, look at the Sphinx, old pictures of the Sphinx before they dressed it up for the tourists. It's, it looked like hell. And, uh, Including the, it was either the Turks or, or Napoleon shot its nose off with a cannon. <laughs> but um, so we have at two sites abundant evidence that there was a humanoid civilization on Mars before mm-hmm. it collapsed. The civilization looks like it was primitive, it does not look advanced. We see no evidence well, of airports or. Well, yeah. So is that is that just because of the discovery of you know, pyramids and faces, or is that because is there is it there a possibility that those things just survive because they're the the hardiest? Whereas if you had wooden huts and things like or whatever, uh, other buildings would have just been blown away with the the test of time. Uh, Sean, that's a very excellent point. Um, God. God forbid if we had a nuclear war on this planet and everything, um, all the cities got destroyed. And uh, after a, a few million years, the Sphinx and the, and the, and the pyramids of Giza would still be standing and be recognizable. But everything, mm-hmm. all the trappings of modern civilization would have disappeared. So I will tell you, I do not know what the level of civilization was that the marsh you know the, i call them sidonians mm-hmm. uh, martian is such a kind of tired term and so i say the sidonians it looks like it was a primitive civilization but i don't know and i don't know what happened there i will then you know the the isotopes in the martian atmosphere suggest so let's, a thermonuclear so, holocaust yeah. So what happened? Like what happened to this? If, if there was a civilization there, what happened to these people? Uh, and I will tell you, you know, I'm uh, I, I grew up in a rough town and um, where, uh, you know, got two brawls in high school. And uh, and, uh, you know, I I've worked with the military and uh, in defense and intelligence uh, most of my career as a physicist and so as one person said when your head is a hammer everything looks like a nail mm-hmm. I I so I, I recognize the limitations of my own viewpoint however I can only connect the dots I can only connect the dots and the image the the way I connect the dots it appears like it was an earth-like planet with a 
civil humanoid civilization on it. And then somebody came along and dropped two hydrogen bombs as big as the Empire State Building on it uh, in the north over the ocean, what would have been ocean, and uh, just completely blew away the atmosphere of Mars. They didn't want uh, to just destroy the civilization there. They wanted to utterly destroy the biosphere of Mars so Mars could never recover. This was, uh, this looks as if it was an act, as much an act of destruction as an act of terror. Mm -hmm. They wanted to impress uh, somebody else in the stars, just how tough they were. This is uh, Genghis Khan making pyramids of heads at cities that resisted him. So the other cities would just surrender and not fight him. And uh, so this, it looks like somebody made an example out of Mars uh, and it would be even more pathetic if the civilization on Mars was actually fairly primitive and didn't have its own space capabilities. Um, but that's the way it looked. Um, the isotopes, when uh, we're all aware that, you know, you can take C4, standard explosive, plastic explosive for the military, and you can, if you're hard up for firewood, you can actually light it and burn it. And when you burn it, it gives off a certain set of chemicals that you could probably, you know, you're not supposed to. You're supposed, not supposed to s smell the smoke because it will give you hallucinations or something. But, um, however, if you stick a detonator cap in the C4 and set it off like it's made intended, it's it puts out a whole different set of chemicals when you do that. And, um, you know, the rapid combustion of, you know, by, by shockwave puts out a different set of chemicals than just burning it in the air. The same with... Uh, nuclear reactions, uh, a hydrogen bomb puts out a different set of nuclear isotopes than like a nuclear mm -hmm. reactor operating. And one of those that it produces, uh, it's it, what's in fact, it's called in physics, uh, astrophysics is called R process, R meaning rapid, rapid bombardment of elements by high energy neutrons like in a supernova. There's two places, mm -hmm. two, only two places known where our process events occur. That's in supernova explosions and hydrogen bomb explosions. And they and produce- we haven't had a supernova, you know, in four and yeah. a half million years, otherwise we wouldn't be around. Yeah, there, there was no supernova on Mars. Right. It was a, uh, uh, it was a, apparently a thermonuclear, a pair of thermonuclear explosions and this um, blew the atmosphere of Mars um, off into space. Everything on Mars um, that, you know, was advanced life uh, like us died. And, um, you, you know, you could try and survive underground for maybe a few weeks and then you come out and there'd be nothing to come out to. And so, so how, did you, um, how did you come to this, this conclusion? terrible thing to do. Uh, well, actually, sort of by accident, I was working at, I, I went to, um, I spent uh, nine and a half years at nuclear weapons labs. I spent six and a half mm -hmm. years, I spent six and a half years at uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab working on controlled fusion. 
And then I went to Sandia National Labs and worked on, primarily on directed energy weapons there. But we worked just down the hall from uh, people who worked on nuclear weapons. And one conversation I had, I was interested in Mars. Um, and so I was Xeroxing a chart from uh, a scientist of a scientist. Xenon has like four different stable isotopes. Mm-hmm. And uh, two of them are very prominent. One is called one, Xenon-129, the other is called Xenon-132. And they're normally even on the Earth's atmosphere and every other place we've sampled in the solar system, they're even-steven. But on Mars, there's two and a half times more Xenon-129. And as it turns out, that's a signature of our process. And I found this out or what got me interested in this, you know, investigating this in detail was one of the nuclear weapons experts I was talking to kind of by the coffee machine said, let me look at one of those charts. Cause I'd mentioned mm-hmm. this odd thing on Mars and he looked at, it and he said, he looked up at me and said, somebody nuclear. That's what that means. So this was uh, interpreted by him to be nuclear weapons uh, signature. And I since have since verified that it is the signature of what's called our process, which means either there was a big supernova on Mars, which we know didn't happen because it would have blown away the entire solar system, or there was a big hydrogen bomb. There are big hydrogen bomb detonations on Mars. They created this same pattern of isotopes where Xenon 129 dominates over 132. And so and that's, that's a two and a half. Um, to one ratio versus a one to one ratio, that? and that's a two yeah, and a half so to uh, one ratio. On Mars, it's two point five, and on Earth, it's one to one. And every place, every other major um, reservoir in the solar system, solar wind, the atmosphere of Jupiter, for instance, Earth, rocks we bring back from the Moon, it's all xenon one twenty nine and xenon one thirty two are balanced. But on Mars. Mars has two and a half times more xenon 129. So there was is there not any place, only is uh, there any place on Earth like that? Oh, uh, after um, I, I can't I couldn't find it in the open literature, but apparently after a nuclear test, I did find one mm-hmm. sample of the Earth's atmosphere, and they didn't say so, but it was apparently done right after a nuclear weapons test, and the ele- there was a big elevation of xenon 129. And so, um, so I, I basically started, inve- you know, I'm a scientist, so I started investigating this. Um, uh, by the way, I'd gotten interested in Mars because um, um, we'd gone through two nuclear crises when I was at Nuclear Weapons Labs, where, in fact, the final one was called Abel Archer, 1983. Yep, And it was a NATO exercise, and we came this close to a nuclear war, only it was all secret, except people at the lab where I worked, we knew. And the nuclear winter stuff had just been published by Carl Sagan, and then we had this nuclear crisis that was secret. And only people with security clearances like us even knew, could even listen to the rumors. Mm -hmm. And that meant... 
morale at the lab collapsed. Everybody was in despair. They said, you know, I used my my office mate, who was normally a happy-go-lucky guy, he turns to me one day after this nuclear winter and the Able Archer 83 crisis. He says, you know, I used to think if there was going to be a nuclear war, I'd run out, get in my car, race home, get my wife and kids and take them into the hills, you know, before Albuquerque and Sandia Labs got hit by 10 nuclear weapons, which we believe it would happen. And well, there's that huge, huge nuclear said, weapons complex around there. It's like Manzana or Manzano. I, I don't know. What oh, Manzano, Manzano Mountain. It was out in the yeah. wilderness, out in the desert, and they supposedly stored thousands of nuclear warheads, mostly tactical. But I watched them actually. I watched a truck convoy, heavily guarded with armored cars and troops with M16s, go into that mountain. And it was just like in a movie. I mean, we're. I'm sitting there watching this caravan go by. We've gone out to look at the solar power tower out in the desert nearby and got blocked because of this convoy. And so this, these trucks was with objects covered with blue tarpaulin on the back. But one place, the tarpaulin had come loose. And so the wind hit it and peeled it back. And there were bombs, you know, complete with, with fins. So they were taking hydrogen bombs into this uh, mountain for storage and so uh, my office mate says to me um, I used to think I was going to run home get my wife and kids and take them to the hills he says now I'm just going to get up on the rooftop with a six pack of beer watch the whole thing mm -hmm. go and he was normally a happy-go-lucky kind of character and I I didn't know what to say I just finally said, Malcolm, his name's Malcolm. I said, Malcolm, what kind of beer would you be drinking, do you think? And that that made him laugh. And, uh, but the results of the nuclear winter study were that more people would die of, of starvation and cold after a nuclear right. war than would actually die in the initial attack. And so I, I had myself decided that if there was going to be a nuclear war, I was going to get a cup of coffee and go out and stand in the parking lot. You know, why even try to go home? I would have to cross half the city and everybody would be in a panic. I would never really get home. I, uh, well, as long as you were in the blast radius, you would just be so vaporized. And I just, would have to uh, worry about it. yeah, it was yeah. right. It would be very, very quick. And, uh, so morale at the lab collapsed. Mm -hmm. People were in despair. That speech of, I used to think if there was a nuclear war, I was going to race home and get my wife and kids and do something. And then, then they would always have like, I'm going to take them for a picnic down by the Rio Grande River, you know, something like that. So morale had collapsed at the lab during this period. And then it was Christmas break. And I was in despair. I mean, I just thought, mm -hmm. here I am part of this thing. I'm part of a uh, body of troops uh, in March in lockstep marching over. We're going to have a nuclear war by accident. This is a Mexican standoff. And all we're waiting for is one firecracker to go off or somebody to fart loudly and everyone will start shooting. And, um, and then I saw this uh, while well, on a Christmas break, I saw this discovery of this two pictures of this face on Mars. And I thought, then I'm putting my little daughter to bed. She's only uh, three years old. And I thought I had hope. I thought 
if there's a dead civilization on Mars, then the Russians and the United States would have to forget their differences and go take a joint mission up to Mars to, to, mm -hmm. to investigate this thing. We would turn our attention outward rather than towards each other. And suddenly I thought, we can end the cold. This will end the Cold War. We're, we're all yeah. saved. Yeah. My little daughter will actually pull up. And so I, I joined the investigation to because I wanted to end the Cold War. And then we then we discovered, Sean, that we were we, we organized that I was I was asked to join an organized investigation of this these pictures on Mars and we verified. But the headquarters of the organization was at a place called SRI in Palo Alto, California. Yeah, and this is the Stanford Research Institute. The same the same place where they came up with remote viewing, the remote viewing protocols. Yeah. The, the headquarters for our science investigation of the Mars photos was just down the hall from where the remote viewing place was headquartered. We, I actually visited there. They had a Mars room. They had all these maps of Mars and we got, we were, had this very animated discussion about the, you know, shoreline of the ancient ocean and stuff like that. Well, have you seen you this? Know. Is, I mean, you can find this anywhere on the internet. Uh, the remote viewer, Joe McMonagall did a blind remote oh, viewing oh, yeah, of Mars, you know, over a million, like well before a million years ago, they said, go back as far as you can, you know, see people. Yes. Yes. We, we discovered only many years later, that the remote viewing thing had gone on and that they had conducted, the government had conducted its own and Mars investigation mm -hmm. uh, be, because of our investigation. Uh, our investigation that I was part of was called the Independent Mars Investigation Team, Emmett, organized by Richard Hoagland, brilliant guy. Um, and um, so we, we investigated, just, we just verified real quick for pictures exist. For the, and just real quick for the audience, you're watching the through a glass. You're watching through a glass darkly radio, or listening to through a glass darkly radio on United Public Radio. So I just want to let folks know that. Go ahead, John. Sorry to start. Just to warn everybody. It's going to get even darker. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. It's going to get even more noir. All right, go ahead, John. <laughs> You're good. Uh, well, um, so suddenly I had hope after seeing the things on Mars, and I was determined. Because I was I was getting so bummed out working at Sandia National Labs. Uh, I was working on directed mm -hmm. energy weapons, not nuclear weapons, but most of the lab worked on nuclear weapons. I just I just thought I I don't know if I can do this anymore. You know, at Sandia at Livermore, the nuclear weapons area had been very far isolated from the controlled fusion area. We didn't you know. We didn't have much contact, and um, but at Sandia Labs, it was a, you know on a Kirtland Air Force base. It's the Cold War was just 
walking naked in front of me constantly. And mm-hmm. it just, it, uh, I was, I was starting to suffer from depression. Uh, imagine at Christmas, you're singing old little town of Bethlehem in your church. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, near Christmas Eve. And uh, all I could think of was, well, what happened to Bethlehem after Jesus was born here? Herod's troops came and massacred everybody. All, all the male children under two years old were killed. You know, you, mm-hmm. I just thought, I'm, I'm starting to lose my marbles over this, um, this constant. The morale had collapsed at the lab. And there I was sitting there a rational person trying to figure out what to do. And then suddenly I saw the face on Mars stuff that done by DePietro Molinar. And I thought we're saved. If we can just explore this and verify it. And we did verify it. We verified the pictures existed. We got the actual digital tapes of the pictures. And, uh, uh, you know, we ordered, you know, prints of the pictures from NASA and uh, so we, and then that's also when I, I, I looked for another site on Mars. I could see where the photos, high resolution photos had been taken on Mars. Um, and so I ordered a swath of high resolution pictures at what looked like the ocean shoreline, similar to Cydonia Menza. And that's where I discovered and, the Galaxis chaos. And John, was yes. this part of the Richard Hoagland investigation of Mars? Yes, it was. It was, okay. it was part okay. of the Richard Hoagland. And you can, uh, there's a very book, great book called uh, by uh, Randy Pozos called The Face on Mars, where he mm-hmm. documents all of this. And so well, you have a book too about all this too, right? What's that book? It's called Death it's on called? Mars. Death on okay. Mars. Death of Life on Mars. Uh, well, I have another book called Life and Death on Mars, which is about reconstructing Mars past biosphere that Mars was Earth-like in the past and mm-hmm. presumably had life on it since it had the same. Earth and Mars basically stand started with the same kind of conditions and then evolved the same way until something terrible happened on Mars, this new thermonuclear holocaust. So what I now understand is that we live, um, uh, well, the best phrase that captures it is, as above, so below. Mm-hmm. You want to know, there's, a, there's in SETI, there's a article called Mediocrity. It says that um, the human race is uh, not remarkable. In the universe. We're mediocre. We're not remarkable. We're typical. So that means if you want to know what intelligent life in the universe acts like, just turn on the news. Mm-hmm. And, you know, rampant misbehavior and... Uh, there, um, so everything that happened, all of the terrible things that have happened on Earth in our history, happen elsewhere in the universe. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the, the Hindu uh, holy books, uh, report that death and mis- there is death and misery on all worlds. Um, you know, they speaks of extraterrestrial life in the Bhagavad Gita's, and um, so we. Uh, so what we see on Mars is um, the sort of tragedy that humans have created on Earth, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, or Dresden or firebombing of Tokyo, for that mm-hmm. matter. They didn't need 
nuclear weapon to kill a hundred thousand people there. They just fire. I mean, that that's why they city. picked two relatively pristine cities, right? So they could show the destructive effect. Oh, exactly. I think Kyoto was the third target because it had been touched because it had spiritual and religious significance. Yes. And and I'm very glad that Kyoto was it was actually on the initial top of the initial target list, but they. Mm -hmm. So the person who was helping to determine the list had visited there and it was such a beautiful city. He says, no, let's, let's see if we can spare this. Uh, and, um, uh, you maybe, know, and maybe also we should the, send out a shout out to us mayors. Maybe, you know, if you clean up your cities a little bit, people won't, it won't they'll be lower on the nuke list if we ever get into war with somebody. Anyway, <laughs> just, just, <laughs> that's a digression, you but John, let's, let's, let's keep, going. keep going, keep going, keep going. Yes, we, uh, uh, well, we're going through a difficult period. Uh, they're, mm -hmm. they're exploring various new sociological theories, and of course, they're failing, in my opinion. With for the predictable and, uh, results, I, I, I don't think we need an experiment. Well, yeah, to, they're I guess every generation has to relearn the same stupid lessons the, you know, three generations ago learned. But anyway. I feel like we're in the Red Guards kind of yes. phase of the Cultural Revolution, but oh, we are. In the that, that's neither here nor there. Phase, let's yes. let's let's uh, you know, keep focus. Here there. Focus, John. Focus. Yeah. Well, so Mars was apparently uh, like an Alderan in uh, Star Wars, where they asked C Governor Tarkin, "Why are you hitting Alderan instead of Tatooine?" And he says, "Tatooine's far too remote to make a good example." He says, we want a good example for the rest of the planets in the galaxy to, you know, mm -hmm. not resist the emperor's uh, new rule. And um, so they destroyed Alderaan and Mars was kind of, it wasn't blown to pieces, but it was basically turned into a, a moon-like planet. And um, that happened a long, long time ago, before the dinosaurs on Earth, at, at least according to the best estimates I can make. The problem with uh, a lot of these dates are determined radiologically by isotopes. And if you had a big nuclear event where everything got irradiated with neutrons, uh, and they, they found meteorites on from Mars from recent, you know, more, the young meteorites from Mars had exposed, been exposed to all his neutrons, like from a nuclear explosion, uh, they had to put rock inside nuclear reactors and irradiate for days to get as many neutrons as they found on some of these Mars rocks. So it was... So, so, so the data, the data you got with the xenon ratios, isotopic ratios came from material for in, in asteroids yeah. meteorites etc that well, actually well, it, was it was direct it was direct sampling of the earth of the mars atmosphere by the two viking landers half a century mm -hmm. ago and by the way there is no explanation for that uh i mean they it's it the late most recent article where they remeasured all the ratios on mars um including this uh, xenon 129 uh, they just mm -hmm. spoke of it as a mystery. There is no explanation. Consternating. Um, so much consternation. Right. Yes. Uh, well, and, and, and of course, um, if they're aware of my research, they know in the back of their minds, uh, this is a sign of intelligent activity of the worst kind. 
which is very familiar on Earth. So we, um, so, but there is now Mars is part of the great ET cover-up. It's a second front, basically. Um, you know, you had in the in World War II, you had the European theater uh, against Nazi Germany, and then you had the Pacific theater against uh, Imperial Japan. And uh, Mars can be viewed as the Pacific theater of this conflict. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm very proud to be uh, one of the leaders of that. Um, we have a lot of people working on this problem. Uh, the nice thing about Mars, by the way, is there's lots of scientific data. You know, you can cite journals and people take measurements. I, I complained to a friend of mine who's uh, in the UFO field. I said, the problem, his name is Don Ecker. He's a really smart guy. You should have him on your show. Uh, and I said, uh, he's a former Green Beret. And he, I said, Don, the problem with ufology is there are no facts. There are only reports. And, but on Mars, we have all of this data. We have registered NASA images. We have images from other space agencies now. And we have all of this data on the meteorites showing all this radiation damage. And so uh, uh, we're, we're very pleased. Um, uh, we have... Um, uh, we have basically landed in the Philippines on uh, on Mars, in a sense, or Okinawa, you know, we're, we're closing in on the on the Mars cover up. And if the Mars cover up goes, the UFO cover up will be considerably weakened, because then we'll have separate a, se a completely separate line of evidence of intelligent life in the cosmos. And, um, and the human race must understand reality it must understand reality that we are one of many many species in the cosmos we're just a speck of dust we're not masters of the single living oasis in the universe we're masters of an oasis in the great desert uh, oh there's there's a nice thing though is and i want to i want everyone to understand this yes the human race is just a speck of dust in the cosmos so is everybody else. <laughs> well, you maybe. Know, I mean, um, you would think it would be denser because we're on the third spiral arm of a galaxy. You would think right. the galactic core, there would be more concentration. Well, there's a lot of, uh, a lot more supernovas there. And uh, there's a giant black hole in the center. So the radiation environment may actually be uh, much more severe towards the mm -hmm. center of the galaxy. We may be in just about the right place. Uh, what's what's really fascinating, by the way, is since you know I like to think about the big picture, um, uh, is that if you look at the galaxy, we're on. There's very spiral arms. There's the Perseus arm, and then uh, I guess the Orion arm, or the Sagittarius mm -hmm. arm, and then the Perseus arm, and there's a, a spur arm that runs between those two arms of stars where stars are very dense. And we sit right in the middle of that bridge arm. So our location is strategic. And not only that, locally, we're in an area on in interstellar space called the local bubble, 
where apparently there was a large supernova that went off and cleared out all the gas. And so the rever- there's there's fewer stars in this region than there is in a, there's a big wall of stars around us. If you're looking down from the top of the galaxy, you see the earth is in the center, almost a dead center in a circular void. So um, we apparently are in the center of a Romulan neutral zone. That would explain why there were reports of many different species visiting here. And one reason they find us so fascinating is we're dead center in the middle of this region. That means we own, uh, in the great cosmic monopoly game, we got dealt a boardwalk and park place. Mm-hmm. So that means, yes, we're a speck of dust. So is everybody else. But we're not your typical speck of dust. We're actually uh, a speck of dust that doesn't lie, that lies in an unclaimed region of space. Uh, I use the example, uh, we're Luxembourg, trapped between Belgium, Germany, and France. Why does, why does Luxembourg even exist? You think one of the bigger powers would have taken it a long time ago. Well, it's because if one side tries to take Luxembourg, if Germany tries, then Belgium and France unite against it. And this is why Luxembourg exists. And one of the cities right on the border of Luxembourg with Belgium is Bastogne. So it's a very Mm -hmm. strategic area. That's where the Battle of the Bulge occurred. So it's a very strategic area. And it isn't claimed by, it's got three major powers around it. And then, and then of course, there's the Netherlands, even up further north. And it exists because it's bordered by three uh, powerful nations. And therefore, mm-hmm. if one tries to move in there, the other two will combine against it. And so it's stalemated. So it, it survives because it is... Uh, um, of its location, its strategic location. And I believe the earth um, civilization has been allowed to develop unmolested. I heard, I heard one really funny thing. I heard that the rumors are that uh, Hitler was talking to, trying to enter an alliance with the reptilians, one of these species that people claim exists. And people, someone was breathlessly telling me this. And then I said, well, they didn't seem to have helped him very much, did they? <laughs> Considering he lost the war disastrously. Um, so uh, if they um, if they do exist, they're actually fairly poor allies. <laughs> so yeah, or, or or maybe they just seed technology so that we integrate it faster than we figure out how to you know develop as well, a species, that, that's, either it, spiritually, it, it, philosophically, et cetera, right? Exactly. Exactly. It could be, um, well, technology of all kinds advanced very strongly, including development of nuclear weapons during World War II. Um, mm-hmm. Do you know, by the way, what was stored at Roswell? Nuclear weapons. In it was the only nuclear... Yeah, it was the only nuclear weapons. All site, of the nuclear well, weapons strategic on Earth. In the world. Yes. Right, right. It, all five nuclear weapons. They had five uh, Nagasaki-type fat man weapons stored at, along with B-29 bombers to carry them. 
that was at Roswell. And nobody knew it at the time. They just thought it was just an Army air base. And um, no, it was probably, if you're, if you're from another planet and you're trying to scope out the military strength of the Earth, you would focus on Roswell because that's where you would pick up, you know, the radiation from these nuclear weapons. And what did they do? Apparently, according to reports, they didn't lose just one saucer over Roswell that the night of like July 3rd or July 4th. Yeah, it was they like Corona and Sakura, right? right? Was it Corona and Sakura? Yeah, the one what, one was near Corona, crashed near Corona, hmm. and the other one crashed near Socorro. So, as the heroine in my novel comments, she says, to lose one saucer over, uh, you know, the nuclear weapon site, only nuclear weapon site on Earth uh, is sounds like a tragedy. But to lose two sounds like incompetence, she says. She's kind of an intellectual. And uh, <laughs> well, is, isn't there isn't. Yeah. I, did I they, had, why uh, did they crash? By yeah, the but way? why yes. did they crash? Why did they crash? Oh, um, I I think um, allegedly. I think allegedly, what's the theory? Say more about that. Uh, my theory, my personal theory, is they mm -hmm. were shot down. Uh, they got bit by a black widow over uh, the the night fighter at that time was the P sixty one Black Widow. It was a World War Two mm -hmm. plane. Had a big radar dish and it had a fiberglass nose with a big radar dish. So it had its own radar and it had four a turret with four 50 caliber machine guns on the top of the, of the plane. And then it had a uh, four 20 millimeter cannons on the base of the plane. So it had tremendous firepower and you had crews that were veterans of uh, World War II. And I think uh, they, according to Philip Corso, uh, the day after Roswell, the yep. U.S. government was was uh, very aware that the UFOs were, this is according to his book, but they were very aware that this was a threat and that the uh, aliens were doing reconnaissance of the earth, of our military facilities. So they had mobilized a lot of uh, resources to guard our specific things in New Mexico, he said. And one of those, um, the, the night fighter, of those days they didn't have jet they didn't have jet fighters that, that were capable of night flying at those that point but they did have the p61 black widow and they would have had veteran and all of the p61 squadrons that were based in japan and in germany were pulled Not into the united states yeah. when the ufo when the 1947 ufo sightings started to occur they were pulled back into the united states so that, that's what i think happened you know, people said, oh, they they had a, they got hit by lightning over Roswell. Two of them. Yeah. Or they ran into each other. Really? Uh, the one that crashed at Socorro was fairly intact, but it had big gash, had a big gash in the side. And if you look at uh, U.S. bombers that were shot down in World War Two, they have big gashes yeah. on the sides. That's because German 20 millimeter cannons. That's what the shell, if the shell doesn't do an impact directly, goes right, it, it slices open the fuselage. 
and, and it makes a big gash on it. And I think that's what happened. That's 20 millimeter cannon damage. And apparently one of them just exploded. It was mm-hmm. just a big flash of light. And then the, you know, there wasn't any more. The, the pilots probably didn't know what happened, but they chased one of them that was wounded and it allowed it yeah. to, uh, it crashed near Socorro. That's my own reconstruction. I put that in my novel about the collapse. Of the- well, I think Corso said somebody somebody took a shot at it, hit it, like. Oh, absolutely! Took a shot they, at, shot at the at the you know alleged non-human intelligence, right? Who knows where these craft came from? Maybe they come oh, from space. Oh, maybe they come from another. Who knows? But somebody somebody hit it. According to Corso, his account. So I I I, I agree. Uh, the the accounts of the people who, you know, woke up. There was a guy who was inspecting irrigation ditches. Mm-hmm. He looks up, you know, he's out there early in the morning and he sees this this crash thing. And army trucks arrived as soon as it was dawn. So the apparently just before the firefighters did, right? Alamogordo. Yeah. 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 Before the abs we've heard the, that the before, police. haven't we? Before the firefighters arrived, the FBI arrived. That was during Watergate. Um, And so um, then the, I was very honored to be part of a Recollections of Roswell meeting where they got together um, uh, a, a very rich person, funded everyone who was, um, a close relative or, you know, a survivor of Roswell Air Base uh, to come to Washington, D.C. and have interviews done. And mm-hmm. uh, we would have dinner with them and talk with them. And um, uh, it was we had, a great time was had by all. And um, the the mindset of these people was like the the two daughters of the sheriff, the local sheriff were there and he said they said we just gotten done with world war ii and they set off the first atomic right. bomb and it lit up the entire sky at night it, they, they said their father came home one night and was just terrified because something mm-hmm. had lit up the entire sky and they said it was an ammo dump explosion and he didn't believe it he said it was too bright it was too he says i don't he says, I don't know what happened. And they had just gone through World War II. Uh, they had, uh, the nuclear test had occurred. They were used to just not asking questions. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and they were near Alamogordo. They weren't supposed to ask questions about what was going on there. It's all very secret. Well, Matt, Mac Brazel, they saw him. He disappeared for like two days, right? And then oh, the oh, first yes. time they saw yeah. him, he was driving, driving a brand new truck and like a brand new truck anymore and they uh the the i don't know maybe you could you maybe more know what had happened apparently is the japanese had been launching you know these balloons with bombs on them from japan and the prevailing winds would carry them over the united states yeah i can't remember the it was like unit and then three numbers but it was the unit that it was like their biological warfare unit and yeah, they killed some people yeah, with they, some of these bioweapons. Oh, yeah. one, one of them fell on the town where I grew up in and oh, killed wow. somebody. Yeah, so it was actually, and, and Mac Brazel had found one of these things before on his property and they gave him a reward. 
for finding it. So when he found the, this is the story I heard. He found the Japanese balloon, turned it in and got a big reward. So he thought when he found this other stuff, he was going to get a reward. Big money. Big money. Big money. Unit seven. Uh, yeah, unit 731 is the unit, I think. Unit 731. If the interwebs inter are right. And guess how the government dealt with this? They just didn't tell anybody what was going on. Mm -hmm. If a bomb fell in your backyard or, you know, a balloon crashed in your backyard and you went out to poke around, you know, uh, you were supposed to exercise your common sense and stay away from it, call the military. But they didn't allow any publication of any because uh, they wanted the Japanese to think the, all the bombs were ending up in the Pacific Ocean and not even. Yeah, they didn't the want to panic States. the American and, people that there's, you know, bioweapons. Oh, no. You from the sky. Oh, could, could have been bioweapons. The Japanese certainly had bioweapons. They they tried using them in China and infected, you know, succeeded in infecting their entire one of their entire armies with bubonic plague. <laughs> they were trying to use it on the Chinese and instead it got into the Japanese troops. So it was, it was, it was a disaster. And uh, mm -hmm. so, so anyway, so Brazil had turned in this bomb balloon and gotten a reward for it. So he found this other stuff. So, you know, it was only a couple of years after World War II had ended. So he went and turned, you know, he turned it into the sheriff and, expected to get a reward and then and then of course he disappeared for a couple of days and then was mm -hmm. seen driving around with a brand new truck and somebody asked him about it, it. must have been a tense and, negotiation right? yeah it must be one uh, yeah. of those guys and, that and somebody he was asked, threatened he's like go ahead kill me you're gonna have to explain it to everybody so they probably went with the stick first and then you know they had to go come around to the carrot well they he people asked him what about that stuff you found? And he said, next time I find anything strange on my property, I'm not telling nobody about it. He says, so he learned his lessons from that. The guys on the base that they had, I mean, these were really elite guys. These were the very best veterans. They kept them in the service with, you know, mm -hmm. um, bonuses and stuff like this afterward, because they're B-29 pilots and ground crews that were just really good at their job. They had the, the best B-29 squadron in the country was there at Roswell with the bombs to carry. And the base suddenly, and it was the at the Socorro site, there was this mm -hmm. red-haired colonel barking orders at everybody. And uh, he was considered, you know, Colonel Son of a Bitch, they called him. And he, he showed up at the Roswell Air Base then the next couple days after they'd gotten this stuff. And <laughs> so they, they said that the, this, this red haired Colonel, it was the army air corps in those days. So it was the army showed up and just took over the base. Mm -hmm. And they, they had already, their base press office had actually released, Oh, we captured a UFO, you know, and, and that was told they had to make issue an immediate retraction on that. General Ramey down in Texas had chewed him out royally over the phone. And so for about a week, everything was in complete chaos. Uh, and they, you know, they people moved bodies and pieces of junk mm -hmm. and stuff with writing on them and everything. Everybody saw that. And um, one guy 
who was there at the meeting didn't say anything about bodies, but on his deathbed, he said, yes, I saw the bodies. So he, um, and I knew who he was. I, I, I talked to him several well, times. At the conference. Corso, Corso so, claimed to have seen one well, in said, transit at, at Fort Riley, right? He had been oh, kind of, he, he was, I, he was on staff you know, duty. On staff duty, which is the most mindless duty you have to do as an officer, where you just go around, you have it for a night, and you go and check all the water tanks, and you check the barracks, and you just have oh, this yeah. checklist. And he went to check and uh, this warehouse, and then he ran into one of his sergeants. And the sergeant's like, you know, he had the guy's face was ashen. And he's like, well, what's, yeah. what's going on? He's like, he's like, sir, just you can't tell anybody. Just follow me. And he goes in and they open up this crate and inside the crate, there's a body in uh, some sort of fluid, embalming fluid or something. And yeah, yeah. it's the first time that at least Corso claims, right? If his story is to be believed sure. that he. Well, they, they said he things. brought a sonographer to his deathbed. People mm -hmm. said, oh, he made this stuff up. And no, he brought a sonographer and made a deathbed statement saying everything I put in that book is true to the best of my knowledge you know that's all i can say and uh so yeah the, so, the yeah, only question i had he was just duty officer he was a trying to he was an intelligence guy and, yeah he was yeah he was an intelligence yes, officer he was. eventually so there's some stuff that's most likely true and there might be some stuff in there that because they you know they say you balance oh. some, some disinformation with every piece of you know, truth. So when you're reading it, Absolutely. you kind of, you just have to take that. And I already found one inconsistency. There's one part of the book. He talks about a Delta shaped craft. And then there's another, the rest of the book, at least where, where I've been, he talks about a crescent shaped craft. So it's like, which is it right? Can't be both. Uh, I know. Uh, yeah. Well, um, I, I, I also read his book. Uh, it was quite some time ago, but, um, uh, I remember him talking about that the uh, military intelligence organizations had mobilized resources to New Mexico because there have been a lot of mm -hmm. UFO sightings there and they wanted to be prepared for anything. And um, so, um, so the, the, the funniest comment I heard, though, is that after all of this had died, died down, um, that the base went back to normal, as normal as you could be presiding over the world supply of nuclear weapons. They had a mm -hmm. meeting of the officers, and the, the, the guy who was running the base was a very popular colonel named Blanchard. Everybody loved him, and uh, they're having the meeting of a bunch of the officers, and, you know, somebody says, uh, well, Colonel, uh, you know, what exactly happened last week? You know, do you know it? And all he would say is he smiled and he says, guys, all I can say is, boy, did we screw up. <laughs> Apparently by releasing what they had found to the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> In other words, well, apparently that's how the Russians no discussion of what happened. Apparently that's how the Soviets knew it was real. Because when the first report was released, they thought it was some sort of a deception operation by the U.S. government to 
conceal something else. And then the moment yeah. that story was retracted, Stalin knew it was real. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's, you know, he, he they were masters at disinformation and information and disinformation. Um, Maskarova and, uh, you know, that's... Maskarovka, Maskarovka, right. Maskarovka. And, uh, oh, they'd done it all the time in World War II, you know. Don't let the uh, Germans know what the hell you're going to do. Make them think you're going to do something else. And uh, so um, it's interesting. The story I heard, by the way, in Washington, D.C., just around the water cooler and the coffee machine uh, was that uh, some of the places I worked was that the Russian attitude towards these ETs was if they saw an unidentified flying object over the Soviet Union, they just would scramble the MiGs and, uh, you know, open up on it as soon as they saw it because they figured it was a probably American or British spy plane. And they lost a lot of pilots when they that, though. They did lose a lot of MiGs, and, uh, they, but they finally brought one down. And um, the interior minister troops arrived and brought out the good Russian Krobarsky and pried open the hatch and looked inside. Neomirakinsky, these aren't Americans. <laughs> and uh, well, it depends on what theory. But it depends they, on what theory you you subscribe to in terms of what these things are. The Russian, right? Uh, they may have been Americans from you know the far future. Who knows? Right? Yes. I'm not saying they were, but yes. I, I don't think we know where these things are from, unless we have some sort of a treaty. Oh, I that, I, let me let me tell you something. We understand how you could fly in outer space. We've done it ourselves because of the work I've done, and like people like Hal Putoff, another very good mm -hmm. physicist. In addition to being a remote viewer, we know that you can change uh, gravitational fields now with electromagnetism. We've done it in the mm -hmm. lab. We've made things lose a tiny amount of weight. That's uh, that's actually out on the on the web. Well, well, uh, even the chief, the, the chief Bernoulli equation. Well, even the um, Dr. Kirkpatrick, who claims that you know there's no such evidence of anything existing ever about UAPs or you know non 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 human uh, technology UAPs, he's doubled down since then. You know what his PhD thesis was on? It was on phonons. Well, this was he earned his PhD phonons. Oh, so oh phonons, yeah. So this like phone for for just the audience, phonons are like photons only for vibrational energy instead of light, and yeah, they possess and, a, an anti gravitic property where you know they have negative gravity, they exhibit negative gravity, and this guy's PhD thesis was published in 1995. So this guy, mm -hmm. this guy, this guy knows what the score is. He's just look and look, no, oh. no malice. He's just doing his job. His job is we're, to keep this thing back in the bottle, right? We're, we're, I'm, I consider that I'm doing my job. I'm supposed to defend this country and the human race as a whole. I published right. my work on the unified field theory back in 1992. And, um, you know, how put off in my theory, very similar, you know, how uh, put off has a theory unifying gravity and electromagnetism. Um, I get big G, which is the Newton gravitation constant. Mm -hmm. uh, 
falls out of my theory to a part per thousand. So that's, I presented that at a scientific conference with a bunch of string theorists. They gave me the ultimate compliments, Sean. They got angry with me. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't had my girlfriend standing there next to me, I think one of them would have punched me. And one of them accused me of mathematical sleight of hand that I somehow concealed the Newton gravitation constant in one side of the equation, made it pop out of the other. I said, there's the formula where, you know, there's G, where is it on this other side? And mm-hmm. his, uh, it was just like a, a brawl at my high school where I grew up. <laughs> you could always tell there was a brawl because there would be a circle of people standing in the parking lot after the uh, school let out in uh, at my high school. And uh, you know, there was a fight going on uh, in the middle of the uh, crowd. So the crowd gathered to watch us do the space down. I said, okay, here it is. Show me, show me where big G is on this side of the equation. That's so it can pop out on this side. And he, his angry look slowly faded and then he just turned and walked away. Then this other gray beard mm-hmm. came up and looked at my work. I had it up on a big bulletin board and um, he was studying everything very carefully. And I said, sir, I can walk you through this if you'd like. And he turned to me with just a look of just utter anger and said to me, no, I can read it for myself, he says. So so I thought, ah, all that string theory thing, they never got the big G or the gravitation constant. I got it. And so I published yeah, they're that. Too fo- they're too and, focused uh, on, the, on the, the beauty of the math, on the elegance of the math, right? Oh, oh. I, I tell people, I said, string theory is like uh, giving somebody some fine uh, cooking sherry to cook a turkey with and then going back into the kitchen and the, the cook is drunk on the cooking sherry. <laughs> He's forgotten all about the bird. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, anyway, it's, it's uh, well, and string theory has completely diverted the attention of the American physics community right. away and the resources and anti-gravity. Right. Yeah. It's, it's Is that intentional? Off into, you know, I think, well, I think since the government funds research, it controls what people work on because it controls the grants. So right. anybody who ta- uh, there's, there's four, there's four great forces that run the universe that we know of. Gravity and electromagnetism. Those are long-range forces. They reach for, uh, you know, across the entire universe. Then there's the, the strong force and the weak force. The strong force holds together the nuclear. That's what causes nuclear weapons to work. And then there's the weak force. It causes radioactive decay. And mm-hmm. so those are short-range forces. But the two long-range forces, and it was Einstein's dream that the two long range forces could be made to unify. And, and that's electromagnetism uh, theory, and gravity. Yeah, electromagnetism and gravity. And he even commented, he said, it's as if the US government doesn't want me working on this theory anymore, he says. And so uh, somebody commented, the third force is money. <laughs> uh, so it's a, uh, um, so anyway, I published, started publishing my theory. I 
you look up gem theory uh, Brandenburg or gravitation constant Brandenburg. And, uh, you know, I've published in a bunch of referee journals now. I've, you know, gone to many conferences, presented my work. I talked to Hal Putoff and talked about, you know, the comparisons between his theory and mine. And I said, Hal, did you see my latest work? And Hal gave me a great compliment. He said, John, I read everything you publish. <laughs> Meaning, you know, I'm watching you. And he's on the inside of the, uh, certainly, he certainly knows a lot more than I do about what's really going on. And he's a, yeah, he's don't, a don't fine Yeah, don't they call him, don't they call, isn't he a member of the quote unquote Avery? Yeah, Avery. And he's the owl. Oh, oh well, I was actually uh, part of the Avery myself for a while without realizing it. I'd been recruited. And what was your code? Was what was your code name? A hamburger or something like this. I don't know. I was, hamburger. I was obviously bottom of the totem pole. And uh, Do you want a bird? You didn't have a it was bird because like of a call, like a. I was never told uh, what I was called. Probably uh, mockingbird or sparrow or something and uh, or turkey <laughs> who knows i haven't, uh, yeah. heard, I haven't heard turkey I, yet so um, maybe it's turkey who knows it's turkey yeah so i um i was told that i was actually part of the avery even though i didn't know it and uh so mm -hmm. then somebody says i'm not part it was part of the guy who was part of the same email group that i found myself in and we're getting all of this stuff, you know, circulated all these emails and asking for comments and stuff. So I, I made some comments. I tried to be helpful. Is this and, is uh, this the famous Sarfati email list? No, that's a different one. Okay. And I, all right, it's different. I, all right, I won't push. I won't push. I won't push. I will actually be included on that one. Uh, well, no, Jack, Jack Sarfati is a really smart guy. And he and I agree on most things, except, you know, I call him Wolfman Jack because he'll go on a, he has a bad temper and he'll get mad at people, including me, and go off and say all of this outrageous stuff about us. And, uh, you know, I, forget about I, it. I and, just, you're, and you're I good. Decided. You're good after that. You're good after that. Right. I'm good after he just that. Vents. He just vents. He just vents. Yeah. That's fine. He just he just vents and uh, and but he's a very smart guy and he he agrees mm -hmm. that we can change gravity fields with electromagnetism. We probably disagree on the details of how to do that, but we can do it. And I use three phase uh, Tesla rotating fields, and um, mm -hmm. there's probably other ways to do it. And uh, uh, we both also agree that we're not alone in the universe, and we also agree that some of the people out out there are not very nice and that's those are the three big things that we agree on and that's that's so therefore i say more power to him um but i will just simply say that uh, yeah one guy in our group said i'm not part of any aviary and i said responded tweet for yourself because <laughs> if you're on this group you're part of the aviary and then jack would have these email groups it was kind of a more of an ant farm than an aviary. And uh, I, you know, I would basically, after he would go off on these tirades against various people in the group, I, I just said, Jack, take me off this list. And so then 
I would be off the list for about a year and then suddenly I would find myself back on it, you know, and he would, he would include, it was like, okay, he, Brandenburg has certainly forgotten about all of that stuff that happened before. So it's, the government has cultivated, I, I tell people, I said, I am the clueless tool of the federal government. I'm part of a faction in the government that apparently wants ET disclosure to occur. Um, I, in fact, I, my own belief, it is the CIA, the Navy, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and some of the other, um, our allied intelligence agency, want the UFO cover-up to end. Yeah, they're the good guys. They the, look, look, I'm going to unabate. They're the good guys. They're the good guys. Right. Then there's the Air Force. Then there's, and we'll just leave it at that. Then, then there is the interesting case of the Air Force, which says nothing. They, uh, and that's... That's not that's an not going to be good for them. What? That's not an accident. Oh no, no. They the uh, UFO cover up is basically part of the founding charter of the Air Force. I mean, the mm -hmm. UFO Air Force was founded after Roswell, and uh, so well, it was. Um, it was almost. I, I think the National Security Act was passed in the same month. In fact, so it was already yes. yes. They, they were already gearing up for it. And then this oh, you know, well, alleged incident happens and it just kind of, the, you know. According to my reading of the reports, the government had known basically since the Battle of Los Angeles that there were mm, UFOs. Yep. And that was what, and 1942? Even was that 1942? Over it was right after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And they may have even known before that because there was a crash in Missouri. And Camp that's Gerardu, the Truman. Right? Yeah, Camp Gerardo. Oh, sorry, Gerardo. Not Camp. Camp, Camp Gerardo. Cape, Cape Gerardo. Yeah. Cape, Cape Gerardo. Gerardo. Yeah. Cape Gerardo. And where uh, Truman had trained um, to be an artillery officer before he was being sent to Europe. He was a combat veteran. And um, mm -hmm. he, uh, he was one tough cookie. And... Um, He'd been in heavy combat in World War One, where, you know, they had a bunch of French 75s and then the Germans would counter battery fire on them. And uh, he he described one incident where his troops started breaking and running and abandoning their guns. And he had to stand in their way and curse them and their mothers and everything to get them to go back to their guns, you know. And he said the only reason he didn't run is because his leg he was so scared his legs were paralyzed. And so then he, so, and he was also a Mason. So he, the Masons knew what had happened at Cape Girardeau in, in Missouri. So mm -hmm. when he got to be president, he actually was far more cognizant of this. Um, he, he knew in print, he knew that this phenomenon existed before he um, was suddenly, um, it ended up on his uh, doorstep after Roswell. So he wasn't he wasn't a completely in the dark person. He was actually probably quite cognizant. That may have been why they appointed him vice president. For all I know. So um, so somebody's asking about. So this, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say the name since we're on the radio and yeah. we're reaching a much broad, broader audience. Yeah. But I'm just going to flash it in front of you here. Um. Because there was an interview. NASA space. That, there's no there's no such thing as a NASA space force. Well, I have an interesting story. I, well, yeah, Space Force. 
yes, NRO, Space Force, and the National Reconnaissance Office was part of it. But anyway, there's this figure that's associated with Chris Bledsoe. Chris Bledsoe just says the name anytime anytime he interviews with people. But if like Diana Walsh Pasolka still doesn't say his name because apparently it's you know that. Well, I, the name, I've never heard of that name, to tell you the truth. Yeah, there's a reason you've never I, heard of that name. So, yeah, there's a reason you've yeah. heard of it. But anyway, I, I know another podcaster who interviewed Chris Bledsoe. And it, the interview was doing really well. And then all of a sudden, it just dropped off like nothing. So when you reach a certain size in YouTube, he you get, a, you get like a, a manager at YouTube that represents you, answers your questions, things like that. So he called his manager. Yeah. And she and he said, like, what's what's going on with this? It suddenly just dropped off. And she said, it's been shadow banned. And she didn't like dance around it. She said, it's been shadow banned. And he's like, well, why? And she said that it was a decision made by the executives. I don't yeah. know. Oh, yeah. But so his, you know, so I'm not going to say the name of the podcast or anything like that, but um, he believes it was because. They talked. They they mentioned that name, and it it you know reached a very broad audience, yep. and they were not super happy about that. So, again, this is all speculation, but there are definitely, if you get a little bit too close on certain things, you're you know, where your channel starts to behave strangely, you're not getting you know many views a, and things like that. That's why, or that may be why. That could be a reason why. I had it. I had a friend call me recently and asked me if I was willing to testify to Congress about the stuff I found on Mars. And I, um, I was a little reluctant. Um, by the way, when I found the stuff on Mars, I basically briefed somebody from the yeah. defense intelligence agency. I knew there was a Mars desk there and they sent somebody over. He locked, Show, mm -hmm. I showed him everything I'd found, and he took careful notes, took it all very seriously. He says, we'll get back to you. I, I, I told him, I said, what do I do? You know, should I publish this? Should I sit on it? What? He said, we'll get back to you. And I thought, well, okay, that's the last I'll ever hear of this. And no, six weeks later, they sent a message back through channels saying, we see no reason why this shouldn't be published. So the you know, question with that is, so did that serve any interest? So the question on that end, does that serve any interest for them to get that out as part of a, a drip, slow drip of disclosure? Or well, they, is there something they, about that they know yeah. that you don't that that allow, allows that to serve as misinformation or disinformation? Sorry. Uh, well, um even in the you know, MJ-12 documents, which were, mm -hmm. you know, released, and uh, I believed uh, Stanton Friedman's analysis that these were authentic um, was correct. And um, in fact, when I got them, they came through my front door mail slot. I looked at them and turned them into the FBI. <laughs> Because I'm sitting there reading this stuff with all those classified markings, and I, I just thought, this just arrived in the open mail. So I, I took it down to the FBI headquarters, 
Yeah, it could be a form of entrapment too. Right? Like you said, were reading you can't classified information. Oh yeah, yeah. They, they said you can't turn that stuff in here. We don't have the proper safes for it. And they said you'll have to call the local. This was FBI headquarters, J. Edgar Hoover Building. So they said you'll have to call the local field office, have them come and pick it up. I said, well, fine, you know, and and so they, this lady with a clipboard followed me across the, and I called up, it was, this, it was just a phone booth, they had pay phones on this or just phones. So I called the local field office and explained to them, you know, that I got in these documents that were apparently marked classified. And the guy says, what do they talk about? And I said, well, they talk about crashed ufos and you know in roswell new mexico and he says they're trash burn them burn them destroy them and i said i'm not doing anything with them i said in right. fact i said i'm not leaving this building with these documents they're your problem so i turned to the lady who was writing there scribbling on her and i dropped her right on her uh, clipboard so and then i i walked out of the building like this backwards with my hands up don't don't give me trying to even try to give me back those documents i'm not going to take them and they sent them back to me a month later saying that no laws that they um they had jurisdiction over had apparently been violated that was what they said it was it was really bizarre it was like i thought i'm in a science fiction movie here and, you know, by, you by that time, I was kind of up. I, I put them in a plastic um, covers and put them in a binder. Then I had to get interviewed for another, uh, you know, a position that required uh, deep, you know, higher clearances. Mm -hmm. And they asked me if I'd ever seen classified documents mishandled. And I said, well, I, you know, I got some in the mail like this. And they said, you did? And I said, yeah. And then they sent them back to me. They said, could you bring those documents in so we could look at them? And I said, well, sure. So I brought them in the next day. They, they, they were, you know, they were interviewing me and they were taking a lie detector test and stuff like this. So I brought them in and they took them and didn't give them back. And they said, you know, we looked at these documents and they look like they were released through Freedom of Information Act. So they're OK. Don't worry about mm -hmm. them. We'll we'll take them from here. So it was all very strange. And, and um, then I got my clearance. So apparently it was not considered a security incident. I was I'd already gotten in trouble once for mishandling a cl classified thing. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, well, I. I made sure it wasn't compromised or anything like that, but like I, I got a copy made of a classified document and took it to my home office and they refused to take it. <laughs> they said, we can't take that thing. There's no, you know, we, you know, it, how, what are we going to say on our inventory? These people made a copy of it for you and they gave it to you. And so I just took it home and shredded it and flushed it down the toilet. That's all I could do. And, uh, then this got reported as a security incident. I basically had to write a thousand times on the board. I will never mishandle classified documents ever again. 
my sin was to ask for a copy of something I'd seen, you know, to take back to my office. And you should have been I a U.S. politician. You should have been a U.S. politician because <laughs> then you ha you can have pallets of that stuff in your garage, you know, in your oh, in your but hotel, my, my, you know, my Corvette on, on your yeah. server, yeah, yeah, on your oh, server. Yeah, Look, I, I'm. You know, they're all, you know, they all, they all do that. They all do this. It's I can totally fine give them to my secretary and then who gives them to her husband named Wiener. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, it's just, uh, it, it, yeah, it's, uh, well, anyway, uh, so um, it's, it's all uh, a lot of smoke and mirrors and it's intelligence. And of course there's inf disinformation and information mixed in there. And um, and that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's, Sean. That's the way they're supposed to run it. And uh, we never let the enemies know what we know, or let them think that we know something different than what we do know, etc. So, uh, but on Mars, I have scientific data, and I've been able to publish scientific articles in journals uh, that are refereed. And um, well, now, I published now, the thermonuclear holocaust. Now, what did What's you that? do to what did you do to figure out how long ago it happened? Like, how did you measure the rocks before the event and then the rocks after the um, event? Because presumably they would have had different chemical compositions or different isotopes. Well, yeah, right? the, the meteorites from Mars. Uh, Mars is very odd in that uh, Mars has kind of a split personality. The southern part is what are called highlands they're they're much mm -hmm. higher in elevation than the north part and they're heavily cratered and they have water channels mixed in with all the craters so that was obviously a lot of water down there a lot of craters uh, and and that stuff has been preserved kind of from the foundation uh, era of mars then you have the north where some of the locales look almost terrestrial there are almost no craters especially where mm -hmm. the old ocean apparently sat. And it's a much lower elevation, being higher air density. And um, that's the young part of Mars because they, they determine ages by, you know, relative ages at least, by how many craters per square mile. So the north has to be younger than the south. What's and by the way, by the way, just to, just, just to interrupt really quickly, for folks listening, this is Through a Glass Darkly with Sean Patrick Hazlett, and you're listening to us on United Public Radio. All right. Sorry, John. I had to get that up. Right. Uh, no, that's no, that's all right. You have to do that. And um, But what's interesting is that if you take the meteorites from Mars and they can radiometrically date them and enforce them, they have to date them by radioactive decay of certain elements, but I have never seen an analysis of how how that would. Yeah, so I imagine what you would do well, is you would get a rock that would do that happened before the event. So what? Right? Just. On the face of it, what they do is they radio. Go ahead, John. You're still here. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, on the face of it, what right. they do is they just do, they date the rocks the same as they, yeah, on the face of it, they just date them the same way they would date earth rocks. And almost all of the meteorites, 90% of them they get are quite young. Their date from um, roughly uh, the time of the dinosaurs on earth. Mm -hmm. or um, roughly the dawn of, uh, you know, advanced life on Earth at the what's called the Precambrian, about half a billion years mm -hmm. ago. No, actually, that was, that was about 1.2 billion years ago when mm -hmm. life had really... And then... And there, so, big, big rock hits Mars throws little rocks out into space, they end up on Earth. You'd think you'd get a very much a, um, you know, distribution of impacts on Mars, and you get a whole range of ages of Mars meteorites from very old, very young. Okay, so they mm -hmm. see the young, they now have three old ones. For a while, they didn't have any. ALH8401, is one of those very ancient ones. Now they've found some others that are almost the same age. And what they do is they show that Mars was warm, wet, and very rich in organic matter when it was first formed, mm -hmm. just like Earth. And just like life started on Earth, uh, apparently started almost immediately. As soon as there was a liquid ocean on Earth, you have signs of uh, life. Um, mm -hmm. So on Mars, Apparently, um, uh, you have signs of biology in these rocks, or pre-biology at least. And so, um, we tend, the, the neutron exposure and the elevated levels of trapped gas in the meteorites, which have the xenon isotopes, mm -hmm. the xenon isotopes from the very early stuff doesn't have this xenon-129 excess. It's only right, found... It's the same the as the rest of the solar world. system. Right. Right. It's the old, the very old kind of primordial rock from Mars looks like it's the same as the rest of the solar system. It's only in the young meteorites where you find the uh, xenon-129 excess. So what that gives you is an approximate date somewhere between 200 million years ago and a billion years ago, this event occurred. And the best I can do is just kind of just do an average, you know, okay, split the difference. And that's about half a billion years ago. Um, uh, there was just, we, we basically had trilobites on earth at the time when this happened. But then when Mars went into a deep freeze, lost almost all its atmosphere. So the erosion all goes away. And water, uh, you know, is the, one of the big erosive forces on Earth. So we ended up with a Mars surface that was pretty much clear of erosion, except maybe for sandblasting from dust. And so uh, it would preserve, um, you know, large, massive um, archaeological things like we find. Mm -hmm. And so... But the tentative age is about half a billion years ago. And that's 
That's my best guesstimate. You know, unfortunately, because of the radiation actually affects the radiometric clocks. Um, and I have not, I, I've seen no analysis of that, even though people in the same breath, they'll say, oh, these, Mar these Mars rocks were heavily irradiated by neutrons. But then they quote the ages as if they weren't irradiated by neutrons. So I, uh, that's, that's, you know, I'm a plasma physicist uh, working on confining hot gas for thermonuclear fusion and for rocket propulsion in space. So I, I'm not aware of the models where you would even model the effect of these neutrons on the radiometric ages. So um, I'm just giving a best guess. And um, all right, I, I think we have some people. We only have a few minutes. Yeah, so I think we only have a few minutes. Criticize me left. for not coming up. More. Oh, okay. So, well, John, uh, Sean, this has been just just a wonderful uh, opportunity to talk. Yeah, this has been fantastic. One well, last question for you. Uh, I'm going to take us way, way off. Last no, question. Okay. All right. Last question. Where? How do you think disclosure plays out, if at all, if they don't put it back in the bottle? Oh, the, the disclosure is going to happen. It's the dike is failing. You know, it's got it's the dike is bringing so many leaks now that people, in a sense, are ready now. Mm -hmm. They're ready to understand. And uh, by the way, I'll tell you in my and I believe this with all my heart. The human race will get through this difficult period of finding out we're just a speck of dust with a lot of other specks of dust. Um, uh, we'll still end up thinking that we're somehow a special speck of dust in God's eyes. And that's fine. Our location, we in need fact, to, is special. I believe we, the we future need, we need to the human that. race we, will look like We Star need Trek. to think that in order to power us through it, I think. Oh, I, oh absolutely. We're going to be just like Star Trek. In Star Trek, you saw the human race successful, spread out over the stars. We had starships. We had friends. We also had people who didn't like us, but they didn't like it. They didn't get along with anybody. The Romulans, the Klingons, they didn't get, even get along with each other. And uh, so um, I, I, I truly believe we're going to be fine. We'll get through this. Diff and, and once humanity figures out there's this captured technology, uh, we're, we're really quick learners. When we need to, when we need to learn something fast, we we do. And in fact, they say that we've actually mastered some. We reverse engineered a lot of this technology. We can build our own flying saucers now. And um, one of the reasons the uh, well, imagine we're Luxembourg in the universe. That would account for why people have left us alone, because we're in some kind of neutral zone and. Um, that means that we have friends. We have we have people who are just regard us as interesting. Uh, you know, there's, there's they interesting in a scientific sense. Then we have people who are uh, reportedly look just like us out there, and they would view us as kindred. In fact, we're probably part Pleiadian. Uh, that's the uh, the one of the rumors. You know that they. Because of shore leave in times past, uh, we're part Pleiadian, 
in fact we're you know we're their cousins basically so they kind of they they look after us and then of course uh there's these little short gray aliens you know and they're they're the scum of the galaxy and uh you know if if they could take this place with acceptable casualties they would have already done it but anyone who attempts to dominate this place risks starting an interstellar war with our more powerful neighbors so we have we have enemies but we also have powerful friends apparently and i believe by god guts and guns we will get through this period we will be fine and we will end up looking like star trek that's what i believe with all my heart all right my friend it is always as always an absolute pleasure and we'll definitely talk soon for sure sure sean and uh thank you for this great honor to be the your initial guest on this show yeah, I thank you for joining, my friend. And, uh, Talk the rest soon. of the human race, I say, live long and prosper. Goodbye, all. <laughs>